Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. heterosexual realities with which clinicians are familiar include voyeurism, exhibitionism, satiriasis, preference for prostitutes, masturbation with pornography is more exciting than using live females, plasmophilia, pleasure from receiving enemas, the stimulus delivered by females, telephone scatology, excitement with other men's wives but not with one's own, and preference for fat women, thin women, tall women, short women, blonde women, redheaded women, white women, Italian women, Jewish women, Gabonese women, Thai women, women with a cute little penis, aka clitoris, ladies, actresses, police women, poetesses, and women who are jet co-pilots. Where is our paragon? Paragon, paragon. Hello, hello. You're listening to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, David Goodhertz, and that voice you heard up at the top was Dagmar Herzog, reading from the words of Robert Stoller, one of the imperfect heroes of her new book, Cold War Freud, Psychoanalysis in an Age of Catastrophes. Professor Herzog is a distinguished professor of history at the CUNY Graduate Center and the author of a number of fascinating works, including Intimacy and Exclusion, Religious Politics and Pre-Revolutionary Baden, and Sex After Fascism, Memory and Morality in 20th Century Germany. The new book, which will be out in paperback in October, isn't only about psychoanalysis during the Cold War. It shows that we need psychoanalysis to understand the politics of the Cold War. When I asked Professor Herzog what drew her to this research, she said, and I quote, It was a chance to get deeper into the riddles of especially the themes of desire, aggression, anxiety, and trauma. And for me, the endlessly complicated, important question of the relationship between the sexual and other realms of human existence. Desire, aggression, anxiety, and trauma. These are also the central themes of our interview, and so I hope you'll join us for a trip around the world through the eyes of some Cold War Freudians. So I have here with me today Dagmar Herzog, author of Cold War Freud, Psychoanalysis in an Age of Catastrophes. Uh, Professor Herzog, thank you so much for being with us. I'm glad to be here. Um, So let's just start off pretty generally. Can you tell us about the research that led you to Cold War Freud? Well, one way to answer the question is to say that the book is located at the intersection of post-Holocaust studies and the history of sexuality, which are two of my primary research areas. But honestly, I was drawn to the study of psychoanalysis in particular out of a longstanding interest in the powerful emotional appeal of right-wing political movements from Nazism and other fascisms of the 1930s and 40s onwards, and an equally longstanding curiosity about not just the history of sexuality, but also the politics of sexuality. Even back when I wrote my dissertation on religious politics and Jewish-Christian relations in the early 19th century, I was already preoccupied with questions of prejudice and desire, and already then interested in what it is that draws people to the right politically, 
and above all, just how incredibly often liberals are ill-equipped to deal with the irrational aspects of political life. Cold War Freud was an opportunity to delve into conceptual and theoretical puzzles that I've grappled with for a really, really long time. But the book was also an experiment in writing intellectual history, and that meant figuring out how to tell stories about individuals and their theories, of course, but on another level it meant, and this only emerged over time, thinking through how to show how unstable and contested the truths of human nature are, how the meanings of concepts change all the time, and how revelatory it is that there is no self-evident relationship between the content of concepts and the either malicious or generous uses to which they can be put. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I, I love the way that you put that issue about the opacity of historical causation. I'm quoting here from the end of the introduction, where you write, how might we explain the fact that very similar even identical concepts would be put to use for quite opposing agendas. And this is this is really a problem that, in my reading, runs straight through your works. But something you explore at length in Sex After Fascism um, in relation to the new left. So I was wondering if you could maybe tell us about the relationship between your your research into the German new left and this book. Right, so here comes another confession. Um, so I was really strongly inspired to pursue this project on psychoanalysis in the first place by a group of radical sexuality researchers and sex rights activists from the generation of 1968 in Germany. And they had, were really fit characters. They figured as subjects in my book, Sex After Fascism. Some of them literally became psychoanalysts. All of them were influenced by Freud deeply, but mixed it with Marx and Masters and Johnson and Kinsey, which is an interesting mix, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, they'd been mentored by this combustible combination of ex-Nazis and re-emigre Jews. And they were part of the generation that worked to recover the Jewish radical tradition of the first decades of the 20th century that had been wiped out or driven into exile by the Nazis. So for them, Freud was part of that precious heritage, that radical Jewish tradition that they were determined to recover. But it, like I said, it's a radical Freud. It was sex positive, gay friendly, joyfully subversive, with a queer eye for heterosexuality. Imagine my surprise then when I started reading post-war U.S. psychoanalysts on sex. They were blithering and awful. So there was already my first research question. How could there be two such different Freuds on the two sides of the Atlantic? And eventually I realized there were dozens, if not hundreds, of Freuds circulating. But there was a pattern to the kinds of Freuds that cropped up. And the logic of the pattern is what I try to capture with my description of the two golden ages of psychoanalysis. The idea is that you can divide the Cold War into two halves. And in the first half, you know, from about 49 to 69, we find a sexually and politically conservative psychoanalysis predominating, and it's hugely successful. But then this version is crushed by the combined effects of the rise of women's and gay liberation and new left anti-authoritarianism more generally, and along with pop self-help and the return to more biomedical model of psychiatry. Basically, psychoanalysis is pushed into a niche existence, but that's just at the moment when the geographical and general loci of psychoanalysis were shifting and there's a burst of creativity in psychoanalytic thinking back on the continent, Germany, Switzerland, France, Italy, running from about 1969 to 89, the second half of the Cold War. And it's carried precisely by the very forces of the new left and women's and gay liberation that had deep sex psychoanalysis in the U.S. Right. Yeah, that's great. I'm, and since I'm looking at the book, but the listeners won't be, maybe I should say you know, the book is divided into three parts. There's Leaving the World Outside is part one. The second is Nazism's Legacies. And uh, part three is Radical Freud. So that arc that you just described about the two golden ages uh, sort of structures the book. 
Right, and then in the middle, it's sort of divided by the huge gash of Nazism and the Holocaust and the long-term effects of that. Right. Um, okay, so we're definitely going to try and get into... We're not going to be able to get into all of it, but I, I think maybe we let's start with the first section about the, this American uh, blithering post-war psychoanalysis. <laughs> so why, why did you title this section Leaving the World Outside? I mean, for... Um, in some sense, isn't psychoanalysis always about a sort of turn inward um, away from social forces? Well, Freud himself, of course, thinks civilization is discontents, and in many of his other writings was incredibly interested in social and political dynamics as well. But I should explain that the organizing challenge for the first chapter was this effort to explain this really peculiar quality of post-war American psychoanalysis the bizarre combination of a titillating reputation. I mean, it remains associated with tawdry sex on the one hand, and at the same time, it's reprehensibly misogynist and homophobic. And this is right when psychoanalysis is at the height of its influence, not just in mainstream culture, but also in medicine. Scholars have offered various explanations for the political conservatism of post-war U.S. psychoanalysis, and one of them is, in fact, the effect of medicalization, because in the U.S. only MDs were allowed to practice. And the other standard explanations, which are good, are the Jewish refugees' flight from Nazi Europe into this strongly anti-communist nation, which involves, of course, self-censorship, as well as red scare surveillance from the state, and also, I would say, a self-cleansing of the profession with a deliberate expulsion of radicals from the fold. So those are available explanations. And then more recently, there's been a trend towards seeing psychoanalysis as itself, quote, a Holocaust survivor traumatized but manically intent on fitting in. But no one has really explained the sexual conservatism. Right. Now, I just want to, before we hear your thoughts about that, I mean, can you just say more about this distinction between sexual conservatism or conservatism and political conservatism? I, I have a feeling that listeners who haven't read your books would tend to conflate the two to assume that sort of if you're a political conservative, that means you're a sexual conservative. And if you're a political radical, you're sex radical or something like that. Yeah. That's not right. (laughs) There is also a make love and work crowd out there, and there has been for a long time. Um, So, okay, let me think. In prior books, I've explored the pro-sex elements of Nazism, albeit reserved for non-disabled heterosexual quote-unquote Aryans, as a huge but under-acknowledged part of Nazism's popular success because the Nazis positioned themselves as the new pleasure promoters in place of the Weimar-era Jewish sex rights activists that they vilified in the ugliest terms and drove into exile or death. And then, yeah, subsequently I've also written about the pleasure-promoting aspects of the religious right in the early 21st century U.S., again, reserved for married heterosexuals. But the anti-premarital sex, anti-gay, anti-reproductive rights, and anti-masturbation messaging is combined with very graphic and inventive recommendations for multi-decade spectacularly orgasmic marital sex, or in the religious right parlance, and soulgasms. But the puzzle about post-war U.S. Freudians was why they developed such a gender-conservative and sexually repressive version of Freudianism. Freud himself was not particularly homophobic. Sometimes he even joked about the homosexual elements in himself, and that's the word he used. He said that homosexuals were not any more emotionally unstable than heterosexuals, that, in fact, homosexuals could become analysts, that homosexuals should most definitely not be separated off from, quote, the rest of mankind as some sort of special category, and that heterosexual desire, too, required explanation. But psychoanalysts post-Freud were profoundly homophobic. It's practically the only issue in which there was consensus. Mm. And 
No one really knows why this is, but the, and the roots are complicated. Partially, it's ambivalence and angst about the centering of sex in the Freudian edifice more generally. But it's clearly also a craven bid for social acceptance and cultural influence in post-war America. And so um, this is getting us into the, what you call the libido wars and the durability of homophobia. So maybe tell us, I mean, you've split the libido wars into the neos and the egos. So what, what did the neos and the egos have to do with all of this? So the neos and the egos are shorthand for the neo-Freudians and the ego-psychologists, and those were the two main branches of psychoanalysis in the United States from the 1930s through to the 1960s or so. So ultimately, I figured out what I call, quote, the Christianization of the Jewish science of psychoanalysis in the post-war U.S. was the overdetermined result of a series of rivalries. And the first of those was within psychoanalysis itself, between the so-called Neo-Freudians and the people to think about there are Eric Fromm, Harry Stack Sullivan, and Karen Horney. And they thought people were more motivated by a search for safety in an overwhelming world than by the drive to achieve pleasure per se. So they're departing, they're called Neo-Freudians because they're departing from the standard notion that people are motivated by the drive for pleasure. Mm. And on the other hand, there's the ego psychologist, <clears throat> Heinz Hartmann, etc., and also a man named Carl Menninger, who became the public face of psychoanalysis in the post-war U.S., and he became one of Karen Horney's nastiest critics. <clears throat> Menninger and the other ego psychologists wanted to restore libido, i.e. the sexual drive, to its central role, but they simultaneously wanted to cleanse it of any subversive implications, and that has to do with subsequent rivalries, with especially the Catholic Church, which attacked the psychoanalysts for seeming to be overly sex-friendly. And then simultaneously, or subsequently, sorry, there's another rivalry with the homosexuality-friendly sex researcher Alfred Kinsey. Right. So it's in this back and forth between all these rivalries that we get the kind of psychoanalysis that uh, everyone loves to hate in the post-war period. But the originary trouble had to do with male psychoanalysts' annoyance at the enormous public success of Karen Horney and her emphasis on anxiety in a competitive world as more important than the search for pleasure per se. And Horney was basically pushed out of the profession. Yeah, why? Because nobody really knows why. But the men framed the issue as a disagreement over theoretical approaches, but they were actually deeply jealous about her extraordinary popularity, and that popularity is with the public, but it's also with leading social scientists anthropologists, sociologists, and psychologists. In hindsight, it's really quite impossible to sort out what was honest conceptual disagreement and what was sheer misogyny. And it's interesting to me, one of the things I ended up doing was reading the private correspondence between the men, and there they acknowledged to each other that they were themselves completely muddled about how to feel about such concepts as drives or about the ego and the ed. And they admitted that they simply hated her success. Yeah, so Hornet emerges as a sort of, she's a, a flashpoint in, in this, the libido wars, but she also, in your work, becomes sort of something like a, I don't know, maybe hero is too strong. But an, she's an, an imperfect heroine. An imperfect heroine who, whose work you're, you're recovering and giving some really fascinating readings of. I would like to play um, a clip from Hornet from a, a speech she gave on the overemphasis on love from May 13, 1950. Love has a reassurance value for those who overemphasize it precisely because they themselves feel so defenseless. Consequently, they regard their partners essentially as allies against a hostile world. 
This becomes evident, for instance, when a woman insists that her husband make arrangements with the landlord for household repairs. She may even go so far as to expect him to assert his authority when the maid becomes difficult. It gives us a bit of the flavor, but unpack that for us a bit. What's, what's Horne about? That's a perfect example of her approach. Um, it exemplifies really well her baseline assumption that so many people neurotically overvalue lover sex because of a deeper insecurity and a lack of sense of safety in the world. Mm. In this particular speech, she's talking about women, but in other writings, she definitely extends the insight to men also. In fact, she has a lot of insight into heterosexual men. No surprise. Um, and nowadays... Horne is remembered mainly as a feminist to attack the idea of penis envy and the Freudian understanding of the Oedipus complex. But those innovations need to be understood as part of a much larger rethinking of how sex works in our society. So while most people think of her as someone who commented on gender, my point is to rethink her as someone who was insightful about sexuality. Right, right. And the the first chapter actually begins with a, a quote from her where she writes, all is not sexuality that looks it. That looks like it. That looks like it. All is not sexuality that looks like it. Right. And I found myself sort of puzzling over this as I was reading through the section. You know, taken out of context, it could easily be read as an attempt to sort of make psychoanalysis more respectable, less about uh, sexuality, and sort of reduce some of the overemphasis on it. Um, but but you view it as an, exam, uh, an example of her attempt to sort of look at the non-sexual sources of sexual behavior, I think, is what you write. Right. So this is another reason why her legacy has been misunderstood. It happens that the Frankfurt School philosopher Theodore Adorno, who was, among other things, motivated by his irritation as for my ally, Eric Fromm, who was close to Horney, but he was more generally alarmed by the erotophobia that he was perceiving within U.S. psychoanalytic culture. Famously, in 1946, he blamed Karin Hornei for what he, Adorno, referred to as the desexualization of psychoanalysis. So that was clearly happening, and he made the mistake of blaming it on her. Mm. And really, I would say he was upset by what he saw as the desexualization of sex itself, the transformation of deliciously indecent joyous pleasure into some sort of mandated hygienic exercise. And he's quite brilliant on this point in later writings. But in this instance, in the 40s, he got it all wrong. Um, and he got it wrong for different reasons than the ego psychologist did. Hornei was not erotophobic at all. She was definitely pro-pleasure. She just saw how much that is non-sexual in people's lives, like their need for reassurance or like their instrumentalization of others, gets carried into sex. And there's some echoes with the later sex radical and creative anti-homophobe Robert Stoller, who's sort of one of another one of my beautiful imperfect heroes. He's a key figure in getting homosexuality removed from the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, in 1973. And his approach was to argue cheerfully that we're all perverts, heterosexuals by no means exempt. And then in the 70s and 80s, he developed an important theory of sexual excitement where he argues, basically he moves from drives to drama, and he sort of believes that everyone's favorite sexual fantasies, the emotional dramas in their heads, contain these coded, convoluted internal struggles that we're each endlessly working through. Oh, I see. That's helpful. Um, maybe, maybe we could stay, let's, let's stay with the, the radical Freudians for a moment. I mean, um, in the last section, you also provide an extremely convincing psychoanalytic reading of uh, Deleuze and Gattari's uh, Anti-Oedipus. I have to say, I um, have 
struggled with this book a, a lot myself, and I, I, your chapter really opened my eyes up to it because it helped me see it as a psychoanalytic text and not just an anti-psychoanalytic text. So, um, but for those listeners who might not know what we're talking about, can you just say a few words about these authors and, and how they came to work together? Yeah, so um, G. Deleuze was an academic philosopher who had written books on Spinoza and Kant, and Felix Guattari's day job was working with schizophrenic patients in this remarkable experimental psychiatric clinic called Laborde in central France, and Guattari was also a leftist activist, sort of Trotskyist slash anarchist, and he studied with the psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan. And Guattari had read some of Deleuze's works. He'd used some of the Deleuze's ideas in his own thinking. And the story goes that he sought out Deleuze to help him break through his own writer's block. In any event, they met. They bonded instantly. They became co-authors, and they stayed lifelong friends, really, like finishing each other's sentences, friends. <laughs> in 1972, they co-wrote the countercultural classic Anti-Oedipus, with Guattari drafting sort of rambly wild thoughts and Deleuze editing and shaping. I'm waiting for the, uh, the buddy flick to come out about the two of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, There's already really wonderful photographs of the two of them chilling together and on the Internet. So they've become... <laughs> There's a reason they're now becoming hugely important, again, for environmental justice work, for post-colonial thinking, for disability studies, for queer thinking. They're, they're, we're definitely in a moment of a renaissance. Well, that's exciting. It's, it's, I, can, I now feel like I understand why a little bit better. So let's, let's, let's get into this. So maybe let's start with that quote that you cite on uh, page 159, um, where the, it starts with the, uh, the truth is. Do you have it in front of yeah. you? The truth is that sexuality is everywhere. The way a bureaucrat fondles his records, a judge administers justice, a businessman causes money to circulate, the way the bourgeoisie fucks the proletariat, and so on. And there is no need to resort to metaphors. Hitler got the fascists sexually aroused. Flags, nations, armies, banks get a lot of people aroused. So that's that's one of the more sort of uh, clear and lucid passages in, in anti-Oedipus. Um, but let's let's dig into it. So going back to what we've been talking about, how can we say, on the one hand, uh, not all is sexuality that looks it, and on the other hand, the truth is that sexuality is everywhere? I mean, how can both of those things be radical positions? Well, it depends on what you think sex is. And it's another example, of course, about how concepts can be used for totally different purposes. So all Karin Hornay is saying is that in any particular genital encounter, there may be other motivations in play beyond the search for pleasure. And that's what, something that Robert Stoller would point out later as well. And actually, going back to Hornay, she shares with Deleuze and Guattari a complete disdain for the classic Freudian obsession with the Oedipal complex, that you know, narrowly familial framing of human motivation where you imagine a three- or four-year-old protosexual desires for one parent and competition with the other, mm -hmm. the famous idea that a little boy wants to sleep with his mom and kill his dad, as though, or I would point out, the dramas and traumas in adult daily life aren't constantly being dragged into sexual encounters, marital or otherwise. I mean, as though the world doesn't crash into the bedroom. Of course it does. So that's Horney's reason for saying what she does. And then when we're looking at Deleuze and Guattari... They're not, so I don't know how to explain this. I mean, I guess maybe you have to think of the interim rise then. I mean, Hornay's defeated. She's pushed out of the profession, and the ego psychologists come to dominate what counts as psychoanalysis. The U.S. version in the post-war period is dominant globally, internationally. And the ego psychologists insist on the one hand, they say, contra her who cared about safety and anxiety, they say, 
sex is an all-pervasive motivation in life. But they simultaneously, because they're so damn anxious about being attacked by the Catholics, say that psychoanalysis is actually about reducing people's sex focusedness and making them more well-adjusted. So that's this crucial strategic move. And it's not an accident that it happens right at the moment when the Roman Catholic Church is trying to stop psychoanalysis from becoming a big business enterprise in the U.S. So it's this... The ego psychologists who, for the complicated, overdetermined reasons I've tried to describe, give us a Freud that's compatible with conservative Christian sexual politics. When Deleuze and Guattari, many decades later, in Anti-Oedipus, and, you know, it's a quarter century later, say that sexuality is everywhere, they mean something totally different. So they're not trying to clean up sex, or they're not trying to adjust people to the, quote, reality principle. When they say that, they're trying to rethink how reality works. So Deleuze and Guattari, and this is why it's wacky and overwhelming, but it's insightful in my opinion, they posit that selves are never coherent, that individuals are not autonomous bounded beings. Human beings are internally chaotic and they're interconnected. And crucially, politics invades the psyche all the time. And, you know, again, the echo with Hornei is that the book is called Anti-Oedipus because they're against reducing everything to this explanatory triangle of mommy, daddy, me, because as they point out, political and cultural matters impinge on people's lives every second of every day. So everything is interconnected to our inner chaos and this constant flow of flux and stoppages. And people can go in sort of fascistic, paranoid, or liberatory, generous directions at any given moment, or right. even both simultaneously. Right. So let me, I'm, I'm maybe showing my own cards here, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about what, why fascism? I mean, why Hitler? What, why go there um, in 1972? Right. So, I mean, the last time people had seriously tried to think about what draws people to the right politically was, of course, the 1930s. Wilhelm Reich wrote The Mass Psychology of Fascism and was trying to understand uh, what it is about human beings that makes them so receptive to the right. And Reich had this insight that people, um, you know, their anti-authoritarian, their rebellious impulses can also go rightwards because people are split within themselves. But he still had some idea that ideology was a befogging thing that got people confused about reality. Mm. And the big deal about the Oedipus, and realize this is, of course, in the middle of the Vietnam War, and once again, why is it that masses of people either just don't care or are actually supportive of the war? And in that context, Deleuze and Guattari uh, in Anti-Oedipus mark this huge paradigm shift in thinking about the concept of ideology because they think that inquiring into how ideology is effective in causing people to misrecognize reality is just the wrong trail, and they redirect to what they see as the prior question of desire. And what they mean with that is that they believe that desire is sexual, yes, it's libidinal, so in that sense they're Freudian, right? But it's also always more than libidinal. So for them, the social, political, and the sexual can't be separated, and they say that over and over again in different ways. Um, you can make love with science, you can make love with flowers, but they also say the problem is that human desire isn't always for nice things. And they refer to people as, quote, desiring machines, hmm. uh, machine désirant, but that's maybe understood better for English language readers if you retranslate back from the French désir into Freud's original German term, which was Wunsch, wish, because for them, human beings are wishing machines. They, are, they want things. And that helps explain why they do crazy stuff in politics. Right. And so <clears throat> uh, if Willem Reich in the 30s had asked, you know, had ventured the p point that fascism is attractive because it speaks not just to authoritarian but also anti-authoritarian tendencies, Deleuze and Guattari take that a step further and 
say that we have to confront the fact that many people desire violence. They desire cruelty. They desire screwing other people over. And it's interesting because it's really a return to Freud, because Freud had argued that also, when in the wake of World War I and all that slaughter and violence, and in addition, when he realized that many people didn't really want to be cured of their troubles, he introduced aggression as a second drive as powerful as libido, or in some variants, Freud was spoke of the death drive. So Deleuze and Guattari are part of the tradition of noticing that there is a destructive impulse in human beings also, but they also say that it need not be so. People don't have to be paranoid and nasty. And Michel Foucault, who wrote the preface to the book, referred to it as a guide for the non-fascist life, and I do think that's well put. This is sort of veering us back towards the second section of the book um, about fascism. And, and one of the things that I kept thinking about as I was reading this book is about contemporary fascist impulses. And especially in, in their section about the, the quote-unquote case against reparations, I kept thinking about the way that conservatives in America today love to mock uh, liberal snowflakes and ridicule the idea of symbolic violence and, um, you know, just talk about victim culture in, in these really aggressive terms. And, and I was wondering if you, if you yourself see uh, parallels or, or lessons that can be drawn um, from your study of the sort of debates about victim culture and, and the kinds of things that, and trauma, um, and the debates about trauma that we have today. Yeah, of course, I can't help myself. I mean, obviously, the study of Nazi and post-Nazi Germany teaches us a lot about how <clears throat> enjoyable it can feel to be, quote, the master race, and then also about the extraordinary resentment at being expected to give up that pleasure when politically de defeated, or in Nazi Germany's case, also militarily defeated, mm -hmm. and how incredibly enraging it was to be asked to feel bad or guilty about the crimes. And, of course, there's no direct comparison, but there's definitely echoes. And in Cold War Freud, one of the things I was really interested in was the issue of resentment over imputed guilt. So in that chapter, the first chapter of the Nazism's Legacy section, I talk about the um, debates in the post-war period about the emergence of the notion of adult trauma and ultimately the emergence of the concept of PTSD. So as it turns out, the catalyst in the Western world for changing the science of trauma, including the very particular ways that we now in the present understand PTSD, was this utterly grotesque debacle fought out through the 50s and 60s over financial compensation for mental health damages among Jewish survivors. And the battle was unbelievably ugly because the psychiatrists, who often turned out to be ex-Nazis, appointed by the West German government to evaluate the survivors regularly rejected their claims, arguing that whatever debilitating insomnia, nightmares, psychosomatic pains, crippling apathy, depression, etc., that the survivors were displaying or experiencing must have their source either in the survivors' pre-camp lives, maybe their parents' marriage hadn't been happy, <laughs> maybe they were just overly sensitive, there's uh. the snowflake thing, or in their difficulties adjusting to post-camp life, anything but the persecutions of the camps themselves. And literally, they argue that anyone with a previously healthy constitution should be able to get over three years in Auschwitz within six months of the latest. That's so. That's just so wild to me. I mean, I I have a really hard time fathoming it, but but also it rings all sorts of alarm bells for me about these sort of anti-Semitic tropes that uh, still circulate today. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, and one of the things I realized, which is so intense, is that actually there is a rise in anti-Semitism post-Holocaust. There's this incredibly toxic post-fascist context of huge resentment against the survivors for having survived and for being reminders of German guilt. And in this context, because it's about reparations, right, it's about money, as though there wasn't enormous theft from the Jews, right? Right. All these anti-Semitic cliches of Jews as money-hungry saturate the discussions over reparations. And, I mean, all kinds of prominent venues are airing views like, quote, once again, the chosen people are each and every one dancing around the golden calf. Where if the Jews want money, they must be, you know, they must have rushed into the concentration camps because they really wanted the reparations. It's a very ugly scene. And in this context in which these ex-Nazi psychiatrists keep rejecting the claims, I mean, in the initial um, set of cases, over half the claims, and we're talking hundreds of thousands of cases, right, are rejected. So then uh, the survivors often turn to more empathetic, sympathetic doctors, many of them emigre, psychoanalytically influenced psychiatrists in the U.S. for second and third and fourth opinions, and it took incredible courage for these sympathizing doctors because they're constantly accused by the ex-Nazis of being overly emotional and not properly objective not only to offer second or third or fourth opinions in these contested cases, but also to actually literally move the science forward and describe the phenomenon that was at that point called survivor syndrome or massive psychic trauma and is now, of course, yes, and this is now the contingent but crucial connection with Vietnam. There was a conjoining of survivors' concerns with those of Vietnam War veterans, and that's what led to the creation of PTSD. Right. Now, I mean, I want to make sure the readers know that you aren't even though this science of trauma comes out of an anti-fascist context, and even though we would want to be critical of this sort of aggressive attacks on the snowflakes, there's also space in your work to develop a kind of criticism of contemporary trauma theory, right? Right. So on the one hand, what I show is that the creation of PTSD was an unbelievable achievement against incredible odds. And... I emphasize that it was an ambivalent achievement in the end. And that's why we need to keep sort of both golden ages in focus. So that what happens then in this chapter on trauma is that it turns to trace the limits in the creation of PTSD, right? Sometimes there's chronic trauma. I mean, the T, trauma is real, but the P, S, and D are kind of problems, right? Because sometimes trauma is persistent. It's not post. Stress is kind of a mild word for what people went through. And disorder locates the problem in the individual rather than in the context. And there are really limits with that. And above all, the people who figured out just what the limits were were the folks, the Latin American psychotherapists who in the 1980s were struggling to provide care for survivors of torture and for the family members of the quote-unquote disappeared in the Cold War dictatorships of Latin America, especially Chile and Argentina and Uruguay. I'm using the opportunity of talking about the limits of PTSD then also to introduce, again, these are not imperfect heroes. These are really perfect heroes that are amazing who deserve more recognition. One is Hans Kielsen, who was a German-Dutch-Jewish psychoanalyst who worked with children in hiding in the Nazi-occupied Netherlands. And he developed this incredibly important theory of sequential and chronic traumatization, right? So there's no the post, it just keeps going. And then David Becker, who's a German-born but longtime Chilean resident psychotherapist who's shown the limits of the PTSD concept. And he works in war zones and other crisis zones from everywhere from Luanda to Zagreb to Tajikistan. And he points out how completely perverse it is that we now have this 
huge trauma industry, which we pour billions into, but lack the political will to end all the wars and the by now transgenerationally traumatizing conditions of underdevelopment and oppression. Right. Right. Well, that takes us, I mean, we're sort of getting towards the conclusion here. So that already begins to answer one of my last questions, which is, you know, why revisit these figures? Why Cold War Freud right now? Right. Well, sad to say, it's um, because whether we look geopolitically, country after country hurtling to the right these days to authoritarianism and exclusionary politics, or look domestically at the ease with which reproductive rights or LGBT rights, which it seems secured, are now once again under threat. It, you know, it seemed useful to try to recover these precious individuals who had thought deeply about those matters. And, you know, I'm still not sure that this is so depressing I keep <laughs> reading the news every day, but I'm not sure American liberals are prepared to respond to the kinds of threats we're seeing now. And studying Cold War psychoanalysis and the thoughtful people who grappled with these problems in prior decades can really help, I think. And they help above all in sort of rethinking this issue of fascism's attractiveness, because so many of the theories that are out there now start from the question of why people choose their own subordination, sort of what's the matter with Kansas kinds of questions. And there's lots and lots of interesting literature on the apparent appeals of authoritarian leadership, and I get it, whether, you know, where they were looking at Turkey or Russia or wherever, I get the appeal of forfeiting responsibility to a powerful leader. But when I think about the U.S., when I think about anti-black racism, when I think about so many other situations in the world, even though every historical situation is different, it seems to me that it's more helpful to consider the possibilities of pleasure and aggression and in a feeling of superiority. Right. And, I mean, more broadly, psychoanalysis feels necessary all over again in the present because it is, after all, a body of thought that's concerned with human conflictedness and contradictoriness. And it's concerned with the frequency of the misrecognition of reality and with the power of fantasies. So in that way, it feels even more pertinent than it did seven years ago when I started. Certainly. Yeah, that, that's very helpful. Um, and also looking backwards, I mean, how has looking at the Cold War filtered through the eyes of these precious, um, non-fascist, imperfect heroes, has, how has it changed your views of what you call the age of catastrophes? I mean, I was struck by that subtitle. I just, I thought a lot more about the horrors of the Cold War years. I mean, those of us who were protected in those years, you know, engaged in activism but weren't terrified, mm-hmm. didn't really get a sense of just how awful things were. I mean, I think that I was a little too young to experience just how powerful was the corrosive impact of the war in Vietnam and the grotesque tortures and disappearances and the brutal Cold War dictatorships in Latin America and elsewhere, all of which were supported by the U.S. But it made it clear to me that Cold War is a misnomer because there was so much brutality and violence. And it's precisely for that reason when I sort of re-understood the intensity of what was going on, that I gained a new appreciation for the work of humane psychoanalytic liberals. Two of the people we haven't mentioned yet are a man named Kurt Eisler, another one named Alexander Mitchellich. They worked on the themes of trauma and aggression, and they became really important. I gained huge respect for them. And also, it was an incredible thing to just recover the subversive, critical, anarcho-utopians like the ones we discussed, but also, and then I discussed this in my final chapter, um, this trio of Swiss-based ethno-psychoanalysts, Paul Perrine and his wife Goldie and Fritz Morgenthaler in their work in decolonizing Africa and in Papua New Guinea. And 
I guess the short version is to say that I had to confront the dark capacities of human nature even more fully, and that made me see the generous dissident exceptions, whether they were liberal or anarchist, as even more precious. Okay, that's our show for today. You've been listening to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm David Goodhertz, and I've been talking with Dagmar Herzog, author of Cold War Freud, Psychoanalysis in an Age of Catastrophes. The hardback is out now from Cambridge University Press, and the paperback is coming out shortly. So keep your eyes open and keep your ears open, because we're going to leave you with a little bit of Thrillington.
Southern Ohio. Southern Ohio. Southern Ohio. 